0: they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the
1: American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way.
0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 492 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Friday, so it is a call-in Friday. We're taking your questions. I I think, you know, back about a month ago, uh, I had a bunch of recordings I couldn't get to for a while. And I put out a thing on Facebook. I said, hey, uh, help me out for tomorrow. I need at least eight to nine calls. And I got like 50 in like 15 minutes. And I think I'm finally, all the people that were good enough to help me, I think I've gotten through most of those at this point. And uh, we'll wrap up most of them today. And it'll be like next week before we get through all of those. So if you called in during that time, um, it's, it's not that I haven't answered your question most likely, but I haven't gotten to it yet because there were so many. Uh, the other side of that is, uh, there was a few of them, if you don't hear your question, I don't think I screened any of those calls out other than for technical reasons. I think a few of them had some, you know, where they were, uh, audio-wise unusable because the person was on a cell phone or a bad connection or what have you. So, Other than that, I'm trying to work through Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Stay tuned today. This is an important one. This has things in it that you might want to know about in addition to just our normal housekeeping. First item, though, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S, a hyphen, and then the word radio.com. What is MERS radio? MERS radio is a great way to combine security and secondary communications. Now, is this a technology so that when you run off 25 miles away, you can communicate with home? No, that is not what this technology is for. The range on these radios is about one to two miles, which is the same as the range on, you know, most of the radios you see in the sporting goods stores that say they go like 18 miles. They don't really do that. That's under like super optimum uh, conditions with cloud skip and. Perfectly straight, flat terrain, and line of sight, and everything else, and it's still probably a lie. I'm going to tell you these things work for about two miles, is about as far as they've worked for me. But what they allow you to do is create that secondary communications on your property and, and right around it, along with combining security with motion detectors. Really worth checking out. I love my setup, and uh, when we uh, go to Arkansas, I'm actually going to increase the number of, uh, of motion detectors and uh, use more security uh, integrated with the system. Now, Next up today is the Berkey guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. You can find him at Directive21.com. Uh, I'll tell you what, folks. There is one thing in this world we know that we're going to need every single day of our lives, least we die, and that is good, clean, refreshing water that we can drink keep our body processes going. Berkey light water filtration systems won't just help you if the times get tough and you have to start purifying water that you normally wouldn't be drinking. They'll also make the water that comes out of your sink safer to drink than it is when you turn the tap on. Uh, There's things in our water put there by our government overlords that I don't like. Now maybe you do and if you do that's fine, but if you don't like it, a technology like Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems will get that stuff out of there for you. Now moving on to the stuff I said you might want to tune into that's different today. Number one, uh, we have now a new gear shop. I announced it last night. It is cool. I want you to understand a few things about it. I will go fast so that we don't take up too much time with the housekeeping, but... The new gear shop is built on a blog platform using a technology called BuddyPress. And what that means is you can join the store as a member. Now, this is not a good discount club, and it doesn't cost anything. What it allows you to do is communicate with the store staff, which, of course, is TW and uh, Sister Wolf from the forum. that run the shop for me, and me. I'll be in there occasionally as well. This lets us do things like answer your questions and build a database for people. So when people have a question, all the answers are already there. It also lets us allow you to tell us what you want next. When you go to the new store, you will see a lot more merchandise than you're accustomed to seeing at our store, instead of just a shirt and a hat and a few patches and things. Part of what's held us back on bringing a lot more stuff in different colors and sizes and all that stuff with shirts is it's expensive for us to inventory it. If we buy a whole bunch of shirts that are you know, ladies cut pink, size small, because five people wanted one and we thought hundreds of people wanted one and only five people wanted one, we lose our shirts, so to speak and uh, we've just been inventory shy. So we're using Zazzle to like create ex- ex- extra stuff, and the Zazzle store is pretty awesome. You'll find an item set up by Tiffany in the store. You click on it, you'll go over to our Zazzle store. When you get there, you can change the color, you can change the shirt, you can change everything. I ordered a mug last night. We have these cool new uh, uh, mugs, coffee mugs, and I was in the store, and I realized there was a little thing, and I clicked on it. And I ordered, even though I don't even know if Tiffany realizes we could have done this, a great big frosted beer mug with the same logo on it just by changing it around. It is a little bit more expensive per item, but that's because they're one off. So, I mean, you buy it, they make it, and ship it to you. But that means if you want one in pink, you can have it. You want one in green, you can have it etc. So check that out. One thing I'll alert you to, if it's a light shirt with a design on it in the mock-up, it probably isn't going to look good if you change it to a dark shirt. Now you can preview everything before you order, but Tiffany has some designs that are designed to go on lighter colors and some that are designed to go on darker colors. You can see why that would be important. Black on black is invisible, right? All right, so new store. Last but not least, member support brigade, and here's the thing you want to listen for. I'm giving away a great discount today, $20 off your first year. That means your first year of Members Brigade is only $30 today. I'm tying it to the launch of the store as a celebration. This, con- this will run through Monday. Here's what you got to do. Go to the new gear shop. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on the gear shop logo. Go to the gear shop. When you get to the gear shop, click on bags. There's a couple cutesy little bags that Tiffany threw in there for you. One has uh, something on it that says something is for dinner. The word of what's for dinner is the code word to get a discount on the members' brigade. So you have to check out the store to get a discount on the MSB. Uh, use that code word, one-year memberships only, $20 off your first year. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Even with all that stuff, I kept it under six minutes with the intro today. I try to keep the housekeeping as brief as possible. Here we go with your first call.
2: Jack of Scott in Missouri. And, um, got a gardening question. I live in town and uh, but I'm kind of right on the edge. Kind of the best of both worlds. I'm uh I'm in town, but I've got a got a wooded lot and uh oh, I mean, got a creek in the back and uh just almost rural. Problem is, I am I've got all these big oaks and I'm totally shaded. Uh, just curious, what can I grow uh in the shade if anything? And I've done some container stuff and, and I know that's an option, but I've got more room than that if I could just figure out something to do with it. So that's, uh, that's kind of my question. Appreciate it.
0: Well, first of all, congratulations on having such a beautiful place. That sounds awesome. And for people that want to live close to town or close to a city, um, that's, uh, that's a hard thing to find a lot of times. So congratulations on that. Uh, on your issue. Here's the reality: you you can only do so much in a shaded area. There's, you know, there's some lettuces and things like that that'll grow in the shade during the warmer parts of the year where you can actually use it to your advantage. But if you're that shaded, where you're shaded all the time, even some things like lettuces and greens and stuff are going to have a hard time growing. There's a couple different things you could do here. One, I'd I have a hard time telling you to start cutting oak trees down. I, I really would. Um, because they take so long to grow and they're so damn beautiful. And let's be honest, and it should hit the fan situation, acorn meal may not be the greatest thing in the world. It's actually pretty good. It's just kind of a pain in the butt to uh, to get ready for consumption. But there is food there. So you do have a food, pr- long-term, uh, reliable food-producing item in those oak trees. But I have an interesting idea for you. What if you go and you selectively prune some of these trees and try to create at least one island of sun. You might even remove a tree to make this happen. You have to make that choice for yourself. I have a hard time cutting down large trees, especially oaks. I mean, there's so much there. But maybe remove a tree uh, or definitely do a lot of pruning and let some more light through. So your lower branches uh, get up and prune these trees. Now, maybe that gives you an area to plant some stuff. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But what you should be able to do without damaging your trees at all is do a significant amount of pruning of you know, larger upper limbs and, and create a big pile of logs now what are you going to do with those logs? grow mushrooms, they'll grow beautifully in the shade uh, you could grow certain mushroom varieties that do well with the logs laying right on the ground, and uh, other things like shiitakes really not cut, like to have the logs kind of elevated off the ground. But you can buy mushroom spore. You can buy mushroom spore in dowels. Honestly, the place that you have may be a perfect place to not only grow mushrooms for personal consumption, but over time develop a profitable business growing mushrooms. They love the shade. They don't have a problem. You got a creek back there that brings in additional humidity. Uh most logs work this way. You inoculate them for a year. So you got a long process to start producing. But with what you have, once you start producing, man, you could be producing like all get out. You inoculate the logs for a year, and a lot of times, especially like with shiitakes, what you need to do once the log is kind of you want to trigger the log, you kind of soak it in water uh, for a period of time, and that'll kind of cause it to to, to, to fruit for you. And because of that fact you can kind of like, once you get a big stockpile of logs that are inoculated and you're ready to start causing them to the fruit, uh, you can control that harvest and take it out over a long period of time. Now think about what you've got. You've got oak trees that are old and big and large, which means you can be pruning logs off these things uh, in a large quantity each and every year to continually resupply uh, your supply of logs. A good inoculated log will produce for between two to four years for you before you actually have to replace it uh with you know certain limitations to how long it'll produce each time that it it bears uh mushrooms. All right. You could grow all kinds of exotic expensive mushrooms, you could sell them fresh to markets, you could dehydrate them because they dehydrate beautifully, you could sell them dehydrated, you could use them for your own personal consumption, and you don't have to cut down a single tree to do it. So you could basically create one hell of an awesome mushroom farm specializing in gourmet mushrooms with medicinal properties for shit hit the fan, high nutritive value, and no worries about killing yourself by eating a poisonous mushroom because you're eating mushrooms that you planted. Pretty cool, huh? Best I could do for you, and it's the best way I've ever been able to answer a shade question, and I'm going to give credit to Mother Earth News that had an article about doing this, not for this reason, but I had just read the article right before I got this question and thought, again, take two puzzle pieces, put them together, folks. That's how you solve problems. Let's go ahead and take another question.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Love's chant from the forum, and uh, I have a question for you today and it's related to your problems with your computer that died. I know that uh, there is oftentimes personal information stored on a computer that you wouldn't want to leave there when you would donate or recycle a computer, and I'm just wondering what you do to remove that stuff, and uh, how's the best way to get rid of old laptops or PCs that you want to get rid of in a responsible manner but still safeguard your information?
0: Thanks for all you do. Really love the show. Take care. Well, uh, first of all, Janet, thanks for asking that question. Really appreciate you participating in the call-in. Um, and it's a great question. And I think that it's important that I don't just tell you what to do, but I tell you how this works and how you actually erase a hard drive and why deleting files alone is not enough to get it done, so to speak. Uh, when you delete a file on your computer, it's not actually gone. The operating system deletes what's called the reference point or the reference to the file. So the file just sits there on your hard drive minding its own business and smart computer people can go recover that file. That's why if you've deleted stuff and even removed it from your recycle bin if you're in Windows or what have you um, and you really need it and it hasn't been a really long time, odds are if you take it to a computer genius, they can get your files back for you. Now, the problem with that is that it will stay that way until such time as that area of the hard drive is necessary uh, for use by another file. So what happens is if you think about your hand as the hard drive and look at your hand right now, the back of your hand, so take your left hand, hold it out in front of you like you're admiring a ring with your fingers together. And let's say that uh, your thumbnail is a portion, a sector on that hard drive, right? Now that that file that you deleted, you thought you deleted, is where the thumbnail is, okay? Until you filled up the hard drive to a point where the, where the hard drive has to start accepting data back to that sector, that thumbnail area, um, that file actually is still sitting right there on that thumbnail. You just can't find it through the referencing of your operating system. So the way that you you wipe a hard drive is to completely erase everything on it and then rewrite it to fill it to capacity with with garbage and then delete that and rewrite it with garbage again it could be anything it could be a bunch of video crap or it could be random character sets it doesn't matter what it is and when you wipe it and rewrite write it and wipe it and rewrite it several times the original file writing of course then becomes completely unrecoverable There are people that might still be able to recover some of the data. I mean, it's not 100% foolproof, but it's pretty damn good and it's the best we got. There's a program that's free called Eraser 5.7. You can find it on CNET for free download. Works really, really great. It's one of the you know generally accepted protocols for doing this. The foolproof method. Open up the computer, which isn't hard to do. It requires a screwdriver. Take the hard drive out and unplug it. Take it outside and take a sledgehammer... Beat the living snot out of it until it's in little tiny pieces and then bury it in a hole in the ground. Do that and your data is safe. Now, what if you want to donate that computer? Well, you can use a program like the Eraser program uh, and and that will do a lot to alleviate worries. If you're feeling really charitable, you can buy like a 60 gig generic hard drive for like 50 to $70 easy. Yank your hard drive. Take another, you know, take a cheap hard drive you buy from a place like Fry's Electronics or something like that. Throw it in the tower. Plug it in. Take your OEM copy of your operating system, you know, Windows XP or whatever that came with the computer. Install it. Brand new hard drive. All ready to go. It has whatever limitations, you know, low low RAM and whatever, but it's a good functioning computer donate it to whoever you want your hard drive's gone those are you know two ways it's either physical destruction Or, you know, deletion and overwrite, deletion and overwrite, deletion and overwrite. If you overwrite the disk enough times, you get to the point where whatever may be left as an echo is just not recoverable. It's also, you got to understand, that people that do this for a living, they take the path of least resistance. They look for files that are easy to recover. They look for the stupid people. Everything you do to make it more complicated, it's like having an alarm system and one of those club things in your car. Can a good thief still steal your car? Yeah. Is he more likely to steal the same model of car parked 6 away from you that doesn't have alarm and doesn't have a club? Yeah, of course he is because he's more likely to get away with it and he doesn't have to work as hard. So what you want to do to protect yourself with identity theft, with uh, files, whatever, you want to not just do whatever you can to prevent it from happening. If there is any chance of it continuing to happen, you want to make it as hard as possible. The safest route would be the physical removal and destruction of the hard drive. You could still donate it minus the hard drive. So whoever gets this is going to have to pop, pop a hard drive into it, you know. Um, it's up to you whether you trust a program like Eraser. I personally do, but I understand why some people might say I'm still not comfortable with that. But, you know, getting a hard drive out of a PC isn't hard. If you're wondering how to do it, just like Google, something like how to change a hard drive, uh, and you'll see how to do that really, really easy. Let's go ahead and take another one. Great question, though. Love, Chef. Thank you.
1: Hey, Jack. This is Matt from New Jersey. Love the show. Great job. My question is, I, uh, I live in a part of New Jersey that gets very little rain, my microclimate. Every summer I go through the same thing where it rains in the spring and then there's about two months where it basically we've gotten about less than a half an inch of rain in the last two months. So I'm thinking all kinds of ways to save water store it, and um, besides just the typical ones, I just had this thought the other day and wanted to know what you think. My uh, air conditioning unit has the, uh, the condenser pump, and I was wondering if anybody's ever thought about, you know, filtering off that water into a storage tank, because it's constantly running, you know, in these hot, humid days. It's pumping up water out into the waste, and I thought, hmm, that might be a way to just at least get some Maybe water, gray water, quality water. Um, let me know what you think. Like I said, great job. Thanks for the show.
0: Good question. And and more importantly, it's a great observation, folks. A lot of times, uh troubleshooting, problem solving, uh and uh creating things that allow you to do more with less is all about observation first. So, you, and, and that's a permaculture principle is to observe your environment, right, to be part of your environment. So the observation is, hey, that thing drips water. Hey, water's a resource. Hey, how can we use it? Uh, first of all, let me talk about the uh, the quality of that water. That water doesn't come from inside your air conditioner or anything like that. It's not a, uh, it's not produced uh, mechanically, so to speak. It is atmospheric water that condenses uh, on on the compressor because it's cold. So, uh, for instance, if you're inside and you are in in a nice, really cold air conditioned room, and it's hot and steamy, humid outside, and you're wearing glasses when you walk outside. What happens to your glasses? They they fog up. It's condensation, cold meeting hot. So since that, you know, compressor, the pipe, whatever piece of, of your air conditioner that's actually dripping, and it's probably the pipe, right? It's probably one of your pipes. Um, is dripping is because it's cold, and because it's constantly cold while that AC is running. Especially Jersey, even when it's not raining much, it's probably pretty humid. And uh, so you get a lot of condensation. More humidity, more cold, more heat on the outside, the greater the condensation drip. Now that condensation drip is absolutely clean water. The only thing it might have any dirt on it from is whatever's on the outside of that pipe. right? Maybe a little bit of copper, but it's good water. It's certainly great water for watering your plants. So no reason you can't use it. The only thing you have to do is figure out how to get it from where it's dripping to a place where you can store it. And I'd be interested to know how much water it really creates per hour. I don't think you're going to get anywhere near a gallon an hour. But let's say you even got a half a gallon an hour. It's possible, I don't know how probable it is, call it a quarter of a gallon an hour. quarter of a gallon an hour, that's uh, what, six gallons a day times 30 days. It's 180 gallons of water a month for nothing. It's probably worth you know, moving it to somewhere and storing it. Another option, and this is something I've, and I don't know whether you're talking about your unit, your interior unit, because those also tend to drip, and they're usually vented off the house somewhere, or your external unit, which is usually the one that drips more. And if it's your external unit, this is something I've thought about doing. I have two units because I have upstairs and downstairs to my house, and I have one for each. And they're on a the side of the house that gets pretty good sunshine. Uh, it's actually the, the most shaded side of the house, which is, you know, that's the best place for the AC to be. Uh, but it does get some sun, so I could grow stuff there. I've thought about doing something like building a trellis right around the area where the drip occurs, b- building up the soil around there. Planting just right there. And instead of trying to harvest the water, because it drips pretty low to the ground. I mean, it doesn't like have a lot to work with there as far as elevation. And, uh, just allowing it to continuously water the area, uh, that we're gardening it. And just basically have the air conditioner be your, your gardener. Let it water for you. And that's one of those things I've wanted to do, and I've just never got off my butt and done. And at this point, I'm gonna just hold off till we move. Uh, with that, uh, no reason you can't do it. Funnel it somewhere, store it absolutely great observation. Hey, go for it, man. Uh, let's take another question.
3: Hey, Jack, this is Kazenar I love the show. I've always been grateful that my husband supports me as a prepper and he sees value in it. But what about those with unsupportive spouses? What degree of secrecy is acceptable if your spouse is against preparedness? Thanks.
0: Um, let's start off with that I don't like the word secrecy. Okay, I don't like it at all because it infers deception, I might do things without really discussing them with my wife as long as they fall within the parameters of what's acceptable. In other words, if my wife wants to go out to lunch today uh, with her girlfriends from work and spend 15 $20 on lunch, she's not going to call me and ask me if she can do that. And if I decide to go out with uh, with a a buddy locally here and, and eat some sushi or something locally uh, and, and and drop twenty bucks on that i 'm not going to call her and ask her. We have that as like kind of an acceptable threshold, probably up to about fifty bucks as long as it 's not every day uh, we 're not going to check with each other so if I happen to spend the same twenty bucks to buy some extra canned goods, throw them in the pantry. I'm not going to put that in her face if, if she, she. I don't have to worry about this because she's on board. Obviously, I'm way too public to be have any secrecy on this, uh, especially for my own wife. But it, it, that I wouldn't find a problem with. Or investing in some first aid supplies or something, as long as if you had spent the money on a pair of jeans, it, it's not something you generally would have a conversation about the spending over. So as long as you're in that case and you're doing stuff like that, that's fine, you know. But really, it's more a better idea to kind of win your spouse over with small baby steps over time. And one of the places you can start is I did an episode a long time ago over this very issue. It's episode 69 and it's uh it's about getting your reluctant spouse on board. And there's 20 rules for doing that. And some of them are things like if you approach your spouse with any level of prepping and they give you any idea no matter how tiny no matter how much you think it's probably a last priority or a first whatever it is you do their idea you if they if you if they are good enough to say hey well maybe we should just get a few gallons of water put that in the closet and you don't think that's enough it's something and they brought it to the table and you take your ass to the store and you get a few gallons of water and you put it in the closet you say, "Hey, honey, that's a good idea. I think we need to flash a couple flashlights. We need to add maybe some of the ones to plug into the wall that are like emergency lighting." Most spouses are going to have a problem. That that makes sense. So you slowly bring them around, right? If you start out with, "Hey, honey, I want to buy six months worth of MREs and keep them in the garage," they're probably going to be like, "I don't know. We need to be doing all that." Who's this crazy Jack guy you've been listening to, honey? This guy's kind of nuts, you know. Um, and I didn't tell you to do that, right? That's not how I advise you to do food storage anyway. So I think you're better off, you know, trying to win your spouse over. But taking a small incremental approach, just kind of on your own, as long as you're, again, your household has that level of the uh, individual discretion allowable in it anyway. Some people are in marriages where if, if I was gonna go spend 20 bucks, I would call my wife and say, honey, I'm gonna spend 20 bucks today. If you have that kind of marriage, first of all, I, it's, it, if the money's the reason, money's tight, and that extra twenty bucks is really going to matter at the end of the month, you should have that between each other. That's important. If the money's not tight, if spending the twenty bucks isn't going to make a hill of beans a difference at the end of the month, or if you have it this way, each of you has an allocated spending allowance, which is the way you should do it. And it's not like your wife gives you a spending allowance, guys, and you give her one. If you sit down and you do a budget and you say, hey. Our blow money every month for each of us is a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or fifty bucks or whatever it is and it's out of that budget and you want instead of go out and eat sushi you want to buy some you know some canned goods and put them in the pantry you can do that but you can only go so far with that before it starts to kind of become you know, there's not any space in here anymore and what's going on and deception in marriage is always bad. deception in marriage is always bad it always leads to bad things. And you know, the lesson of, of deception is once you deceive, you have to deceive again to cover up the original deceit. And you end up deceiving, 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 and all of a sudden the person that maybe would have been easier to win over becomes very resistant because they feel that, hey, you're my you're my partner in life, and you've deceived me. I didn't know this was going on. I may not have approved of this. So it's much better to soft sell it and do a few now doing a few things again with discretionary spending. And then pointing to it as an example, because usually the, the the husband, the wife, either one comes home and looks in the pantry and goes, "Oh, this is what you mean." Not a bad idea. I'll also tell you this: take the reluctant spouse. Say, "I want you to I want you to humor me on this." Once you get him a little bit warmed up to the idea, there's this guy. He's a little eccentric. Name's Jack. Does a show I listen to. There's one episode I want you to listen to with an open mind. It, it'll take you an hour. You can do it while you're cutting the grass. You could do it while you're playing around on the computer. You don't have to sit there and focus on it 100%. All you have to do is listen to this one episode, one time, and if you're not interested after that, I'll let it go. Let me do the talking for you. That episode has won over many, many reluctant spouses. In fact, one of our dear moderators on the forum uh, and, and head of the gear shop now, Tiff Rockwell, was won over when her husband said, hey, you got to listen to this. So it works. It's all ready for you. Go to town with it. Great question. Thank you. And let's go ahead and take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. I don't know if this made it in time to get on your Friday call-in show, but uh I was wondering what was the holdup on you moving full-time to the bug-out location. Anyways, love the show. Thank you very much.
0: It's, it's an interesting question, and it, once again, it amazes me how you guys send questions back-to-back back that dovetail so well into each other. We just went from deceiving your spouse to why I haven't moved, and of course, it has everything to do with my spouse. I haven't moved yet because I'm a loving husband that does everything I possibly can to compromise with my wife when the request is reasonable. and um, She wasn't ready to go this summer, just wasn't ready to go. And I think it had to do with our son kind of finally coming into his own and getting his feet on the ground and uh, because he doesn't really want to go with us and he'll be staying behind and figuring out what to do with his life when we're not here for free room and board anymore. Uh, it had to do with spending more time with her father who's getting up there in his years. And she's been, you know, every day after work, She's not every day, uh, one day a week after work on the way home, like clockwork, she stops and spends a couple hours with her dad and it's, it's reconnection time. And I think she needed to continue to do that for a while as well. She also needed to kind of get a vision for what life would be like when she's not having to go to work every day and doesn't have that in her life. You know, I know what I'll be doing. I'll be doing what I do right now. I'll just be doing it there instead of here. And... We've spent time with each other learning more about each other in the past year as we've talked about moving. We've come up with some things that we want to do that the newfound freedom will give us. Like the hottest months of the year, uh, we actually plan on probably renting a home, uh, somewhere in the far north, like New Hampshire or Montana or, or Washington state or maybe even in Canada for like maybe a month at a time. Instead of taking vacations, we're just going to go live somewhere else for a month. You know, I mean, we'll have to actually have a plan to get the hell home quickly. If we have to, and things like that, but I mean, t- you know, instead of boarding the animals, taking the, the dog and cat with us, and and just living our lives in it in a totally different fashion, using that time for doing some more development for the show, video, and things like that. So as the entire concept became more like her place in it became clear she's become more willing to do it. And instead of being a stupid husband and saying, Honey, you said we could do this this year, and I went full-time with my business, and I quit my job, and I gave up the income, and now I've got to push harder to make us through this year. I was a smart husband and said, Honey, if that's what you need, we'll do it, but I need to know when it can happen. And she said to me, "The, The hardest thing you can ever have to answer when you want to do something this bad, I don't know yet. And I did the smart thing, husbands. Listen, I shut my freaking mouth. And I'd like to use the other word, but I don't use that word on my show. That's one word I won't go to. But you know what I'm saying? I shut up. I would I would ask about it on occasion, like you know, hey, how do you feel about this and that? And I would bring things to her about what we would do, but I stopped pushing. And as this this her own ability to see her place in this evolved, she decided, and I've I think I've talked about this recently. Soon as Christmas is over and, you know, nobody's trampling through the house, new carpet paint, house goes up for sale by February 1, whether the house is sold or not, we're the hell out of here. So I get to move, and now I'm being the best husband in the world, man. I mean, better than I've been all year, you know, because I'm like, I'm getting the new bike for Christmas, guys. So you can learn from that as well. So for those that have been wondering what the holdup is, Jack said he was going to do this. Jack's been raring to go. Jack would have went two years ago. Because the cost of living d- d- decrease. I, you know, If I had to, I could work as a greeter at freaking Walmart and afford my lifestyle up there. Uh, fortunately, I do not have to do that. But a marriage is a partnership. And if you're going to do something as a partnership, you have to find the place for both partners to fit into it. There's a little bit of marriage survival for you today. The Marriage Survival Minute, I guess. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John
2: in Salt Lake. I have a quick question for you about Episode 471, great interview you did with Mike Gazer on the state of the economy. Uh, one particular thing that, uh, good great question you asked him was, what advice does he have for the general guy, you know, the the Joe Blow out there in today's economy? And his response kind of made me want to call in and ask you a question. He said that uh, he doesn't advise that anybody buy a house under any circumstances in this market we recently uh, just sold our first time uh, first homeowner's house a small you know starter home and so now obviously we're looking for a bigger house to move into and uh, so that took me aback when he said don't buy a house in this market right now we're renting we want to get out of that we want to uh, buy a larger house for our family. So I wanted to get your input on that what you think of uh, why why we shouldn't buy a house in this market
0: under any circumstances. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, let's let's start out with the fundamental reality. When I bring a guest on the show, which doesn't happen that often, but it's going to be more and more going forward, um, I don't bring a guest on the show so that I can argue with them and banter with them. Maybe a little bit of that happens and we play off each other some with some differing opinions. But I bring them on the show so that they can give their opinion, you can hear my opinion on a daily basis, and... So I don't need to overshadow their opinion during their time to speak. I, and I've worked hard that when I have an interview or an interview going that I try to keep my mouth shut as much as I can and get the other person doing the talking because I think in my early interviews I talked too much and it's because I do a show every day by myself. It's a monologue. So it's easy for me to overshadow my guests and I've worked real hard not to do that and I had to hold myself back in that very scenario because in this this argument or debate or whatever you want to call it, or this point, I do not agree with Mike's assessment. I'll also tell you that I was asking, you have to give the context, I was asking him what can people do to invest their money as a common everyday guy and I've got cash, what do I do to invest it right now? And that's when he said under no circumstances should you buy a house. So I took that answer on some degree to be as a pure investment because Mike is is a smart guy with money, right? And if you wouldn't buy something today, and you're holding it, and you can sell it, what is the smart thing to do? Well, if you wouldn't buy it, then you get rid of it. You'd sell it and get the, so in other words, if I had a house that was worth a half million dollars, and you would look at it and say, Jack, if you had a half a million dollars, you shouldn't buy that house, what advice would you give me? Well, if you can get a half a million for it, sell it. Get the half a million out of it, get the hell away from it, right? Now, Mike came on and, and did a follow up show where he talked about homesteading in his great beautiful place in Connecticut. I don't know about a for sale sign in front of that house. So, what does that tell you? That tells you that there's either some inconsistency there or he's talking two different worlds. I don't know. I'll follow up with him and find out for you. But my belief is he was saying if you have, because I asked him about the guy that's sitting around that has. Fifty to fifty, 50 to five hundred thousand dollars, and wants to know what to do with it. He said, "Don't buy a house. Don't put your money there, right?" As an investor, that's how I took it. Even if he's talking about not buying, if you're renting and just keep renting and don't buy a house, I don't agree under certain circumstances. Number one, what area do you live in? If you live in an area that you think's already taken it on the chin enough that it's not going to go much further down, you could be wrong. Whenever you buy a house, you're always gambling. No, the, the, the nonsense that houses always go up or always eventually go up is, is just bullshit. It's a lie. It's something real estate agents are trained to say. I watched an episode of House Hunters last night where the guy was like, you know, she says, what do you want to study? He said, maybe 150 170 And basically, I don't want to get myself into a position if the market comes down where I'm stuck with the house. And her advice was, but if you're going to live there anyway, it doesn't matter. Now, I actually give that same advice with some tempering though. The way she said it was just like overcome his objection, let's get on with this and buy a freaking house, dude. You're know you going to buy a $150,000 house, and I'm going to have to probably split the commission with another agent, and I I, I don't have time to mess with you if you're not going to get this done and make me some money. That's how I took what her advice was. But there is some validity there. If you're going to live in a house for 10 years or more, and you buy a house you could afford the payments on... Easily. You have good cash reserves in place if you lose a job or your income declines or what have have you. And the underlying value of your property goes down. we'll carry your ass down to the tax office and try to use that to renegotiate your property taxes. All right? I don't know if it'll work, but you might as well give it a shot. But don't sit there and worry about it because if you don't move and if your income is the same or better... And if you want to live there, if you're buying, a, especially if you're buying a house you plan on dying in, it doesn't matter. Now, if you say to me right now, Jack, I want to buy a house, but I'm on this upward plan, you know, where I'm going to probably buy another house in three years. I'm going to want to sell this, see if I can extract some equity and buy the next house. I'm with Mike. Don't buy a house right now, because I think there's enough pain in this market left that you might get a better deal in the future. What Mike's overall advice that I took out of that show was, if you have cash, and you want to know what to do with it right now, the smartest thing until we know more about what the hell's going to happen next, keep it. That's how I took that answer. His, his response was, don't buy gold, don't buy silver, don't buy stocks, don't buy a house, don't buy anything. Short-term safe, Reasonably yielding bonds and cash and that's all. Tie this is exact words where tie your boat to the dock right now. It's not safe out on the ocean. There are storms, we don't know where they're gonna come from, how bad they're gonna be, or what they're gonna look like. This is a time for conservatism and safety. But I don't believe that the advice of don't buy a house at any time under any circumstances was the right advice for everybody. It's up to you to make that decision for yourself. What I will say is be conservative. With your pricing. Be selective as a shopper. And there are some amazing freaking deals available right now. Be a ruthless negotiator. Use everything to your advantage on pricing. When you go put an offer in low, do stuff like we'll close in 45 days. We'll close in 60 days. Make the other party believe that you're stuck with something you've got to offload. And they'll generally come back with, that's too low and too long. So we'll either do a full price offer and you close in your 60 days, or we'll do a middle meeting, but then you got to close in 30 days. They don't need to know that you can close in 30 days on your first offer. all right? Or if you can close like next week, they don't need to know that either, so you'll close in 30 days. And when they counter say, you know what, if you go back to my original offer, we've done some things. We can close next week. Because every time they have to make let's say it's a house with a house payment of $1200 on it. If they have to make that payment again before you close and 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 you pay a little bit more, they're still out they're they're back to net. They'll come down further to close faster. But that's not something you need to kind of tip your hand to early. So be a ruthless negotiator, fair but ruthless, a smart shopper, and a conservative buyer, and use this opportunity of a down market to find something you really love. There is opportunity out there. There's a great time to find a diamond in a rough. Have we hit the bottom of the real estate market for this cycle? I will be honest with you that I don't know. But if my life... Is in a situation where I can afford a home and I find what I want for a great deal right now, you bet I'd buy it. Let's go ahead and take another question.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Jen of 2nd and 2004. Love the show. I love being a member of the community. It's a great resource for us. I was wondering, what do you do um, if identity theft is a threat um, or has actually happened to you or whatever? I realized that um, that it's not uh, really discussed on the forum, and I can't remember you ever talking about it on the air, and I was wondering um, if you consider identity theft a threat and if something should happen, how do you go about, um, you know, mending the situation? If there are any preps that we can do to, uh, um, you know, prevent it from happening, and how do you respond? So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Bye.
0: Well, let's start out with the service that I actually like. I don't put them on the site as an endorsement because they're not a sponsor and it wouldn't be fair to other sponsors for me to do that, but I actually really like the LifeLog product. Um I think it's one of the best out there. It's dirt cheap at 10 bucks a, 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 a person. So, uh, a, a two two, you know, uh, a, a husband and wife you're looking at $240 a year and it's a pretty good product. Now, I'm going to get a whole slew of responses about how you can do the same thing yourself if you do this and that but I don't have to, okay? I don't have to do anything except sign up. And then there's a certain level of insurance that comes behind it and a certain willingness to uh, cover things uh, if they fall down on their job. And we'll hear things like uh, people say, well, well, there was this guy in Fort Worth and you know that CEO, Todd Davis, that always puts his Social Security? That guy actually ripped off Todd Davis and he got away with it. He didn't get away with it. He got caught he went to freaking jail. And Todd Davis lost nothing. I mean that was proof that the that the product worked is what that was, and that was proof that there are stupid criminals out there. That really, instead of being something that people that don't like LifeLock for whatever reason hold up, um, that should be uh, that should be on America's dumbest criminals. If you try to use Todd Davis's freaking credit or Social Security number, you're an idiot. For those who haven't seen the commercials, Todd Davis is the CEO of LifeLock, and he publicly announces his Social Security number to prove that his service works. That won me over, and I haven't needed the product, but we use the product, and I like the product, and it's cheap insurance, and it's one additional thing. The other things are just being smart. Firewall and protect your computers on your home networks. Don't keep, I mean, the other side of that is, even though we have firewalls on each machine, um, if you got into my computers, you're not getting my financial information. We don't keep that there, you know? Uh, be smart about any of your online banking activities. That's probably your biggest weak spot. You know, you can, you can set things so that, like, certain sites are not cached in any way, shape, or form. That may make you have to repeat it. Like, with our bank, uh, there's, like, uh, a, security, a secondary security question. If it doesn't recognize your machine as something that you normally, so if somebody went to a library with my information, and they just had the, the, the username and password, they would get challenged. And I have to deal with that challenge every time because I don't allow my browser to cache uh, any information from our bank site, which is another level of security. But then I have to answer that. Well, It's just one more step. It's not that big a deal. It's not like it's something we do every day anyway. But stuff like that is some additional things that you can do. Get a paper shredder. Everything that has anything that could possibly be used in any way against you. Um, shred it, and put it in your compost pile. Why are you throwing it in the garbage anyway is what I tell people. That's good material that you can feed to worms or use to make great bedding for your plants. Paper, of course, being made out of wood shavings is great for compost. Uh, composting the last credit card statement you ever get that says zero on it gives you a special pleasure while you watch worms crawl over it, eat it, and crap on it too, by the way. Um, be smart about who you talk to. Uh, If you get an email from any bank, PayPal, eBay, anything that says take our survey, whatever, just freaking delete it. You don't need to be taking surveys even if it really comes from them, and it probably doesn't. If you get an email that says anything about your account being locked out or blocked or whatever, delete it immediately. If you're that concerned, you know... Clear your browser cache to make sure nothing got in there while you were reading that email. And then go log in independently in a new browser session and make sure you can get in. Um, don't even worry about it, that's what I'm going to tell you. They, a bank will not send you an email saying we've blocked access to your account until you do this. If you're really concerned, call your bank and ask them. And, and after you wait on customer service hold long enough, they'll tell you to delete the email and there's no such thing. Uh, So things like that are important. The big thing is about what you throw away, what you reveal about yourself to people. Don't give information if it's not required. There's a lot of times where you'll sign up for a service or whatever, people ask for your social security number. Always tell them no first. Always tell them no first. No, you don't need my social security number for that. Oh, we need it from everybody. No, you don't. Well, then we can't set up your account. Fine, don't set up my account before you decide. And if they say, well, okay, then let them do it without it because uh, you'll find out sometimes they can. Or when they say, well, we can't do it and you really want whatever you're trying to buy, say, you know what, I need to talk to your supervisor because maybe you don't have the authority to do this, but I know for a fact I can sign up for this and, and, and go up the chain a little bit and see if you can get it done. If you can't, then you have to make a decision. The reality is your personal information is everywhere, though, and it's like why I like a fall by a fallback like LifeLock. Um. Understand that identity theft is a big problem and one that's going to get work worse. Insuring uh, against it is probably a smart idea, and being smart about where you allow your data to go is even smarter. Now, here's the beauty of not having credit cards. It's one less place for that to happen to you. I hope people understand that. It's one less risk. If you're out paying cash for, uh, for your dinner, uh, instead of laying down the plastic... You know, there was a scam going on recently where waiters and waitresses got these little boxes, and as they were walking away to take your card and charge it, they'd swipe your card and it would record your credit card information. You know, and they you know they'd look down at the you know the C 3 number, uh, and, and they you know jot that down somewhere, and basically they were stealing credit card account information, uh, and then they would use it maybe a month or two after. Uh, you'd been there, so you had no connection in your head to where this possibly could have happened to you. Uh, and they, and most people that steal credit card numbers, here's another thing. Most people that steal credit card numbers don't go buy stuff with your credit card number. They sell your credit card number to people that buy stuff with your credit card number. That's, that's the business model because it creates a one off. So I steal your credit card number and I steal 5,000 other credit card numbers and I put them out on an auction and some guy in Nigeria uses it to buy a bunch of electronics, scams some guy in New York by sending him a picture of some hot chick that says she wants to be in business with him, makes him the import-exporter and exports all these goods from the United States over to, to, to Ghana and sells them on the street over there at half their market value. And the guy in New York is a patsy and he's been tricked into paying for the shipping. That's how these things actually work. So be careful, be smart, and if you can get some type of insurance against it, uh, do it. Uh, Dave Ramsey recommends a different product than LifeLock that he says is better, but I don't remember the name of it. If anybody knows that, um, let me know and I'll, I'll let folks know that. Don't bother bashing LifeLock to me, though, folks. It's, it's a good product. It is what it is and it does what it says. And maybe you can find something that does more. But those of you that have an axe-grain grind with them, I don't know why. What I haven't found is people say, I bought this and it didn't work for me. I see outsiders picking at a product that, for some reason, again, I don't know. I don't understand. All right, let's go ahead and take another question.
2: Hi, Jack. I recently planted a peach tree. And the other day I noticed that there's, like, clear gooey things on some of the ends of the branches and whatnot. And then later, when I was uh, out of state in Connecticut eating a local peach, one of the peaches had a similar clear, gooey thing. I don't know how to describe it. It looks like clear silicone. Um, it, what is it? I'm not sure. I'm figuring it must be some pest of some sort. But uh, maybe you can uh, help me track down what it is and how to deal with it. Thank you.
0: Well, you're actually seeing two different things, uh, just both happen to be with peaches. The stuff you're seeing around the branches and, and all is probably from points where you've done some pruning, and if you've pruned at a time of the year before the tree fully heals and the sap begins to flow, you're seeing the sap from the tree. That, that's all that it is. And just about any tree that, that is a, a sap-bearing tree, and, and just about every tree I know of is, if you cut it at the right time of the year, you'll see some uh, sap leak from the tree. So that's nothing really to concern yourself with. You'll get less of it if you do your pruning uh, in, in the late fall after the leaves drop and the tree is dormant, uh, that would be the best time to do your pruning, and you'll get less sap it, uh, leakage. You still probably get some, though. From the peaches is, is actually the peaches' juice, okay? And, and I've had it on my own peaches, and it's not a big concern if you get a little bit of it when the peaches are close to harvest, and all that it is, is anything that actually punctures the skin of the peach, unlike a, a fruit like an apple, that'll generally create some sort of bruising. Peaches have that thick, syrupy uh, uh, juice in them. It'll leak out, and that's the peach trying to heal itself, which is exactly what sap from a tree is. It's the same effect. Let some of this leak, leak out, and it'll thicken, and it'll form kind of a, a case over top of this wound that I have so to speak, so it's like a scab uh, but it's certainly not harmful it won't hurt you, and it's not anything to be alarmed about, unless if you go out, because I had this this year I've had a beautiful harvest from my peach tree we gave away tons of them we didn't feel like canning this year we were traveling and all, and uh, did a little bit of dehydrating, but not a lot so, ate as many as we could gave some away, um, and no problems, and a few of it, like you described um, The year before, when they were little, they were small, maybe half of their full size, they all had little gobules on them. You know what that was? That was an infestation of fruit flies that eventually devastated my peach crop from last year, not this year. And what you need to realize is whenever you see something like that on a fruit like a peach, something has... Punctured or wounded the peach. And in many instances, it's a fruit fly has laid eggs and the little fruit fly maggot has gone inside there and he's crawling around growing and getting bigger and eating the fruit. And the peach is trying to heal the wound so that it can continue to grow. And that peach actually is going to be successful. It's going to develop, because what is it? The peach doesn't care whether you eat it or not. The peach (laughs) cares about developing the stone to a point. Uh, inside the peach where it can reproduce. And that'll probably be enough to get most of the peaches through to a point where they'll reach reproductive capacity. And if some animal that doesn't care that there's a fruit fly in there eats the peach, uh, moves the stone, uh, either through consumption or just movement, and dropping it somewhere else, the peach has a chance to grow. That's what you're seeing Again, nothing to worry about. When you see it on the fruit early, way before the fruit ripens in large numbers, you probably are going to have a bad year with your fruit, though. Let's go ahead and take uh, another question. Hi, Jack. This is
3: Michelle with Baldy and the Blonde. We love your show. Uh, I have a question about the government health care bill, which I just realized mandates electronic records, which they will be monitoring on an as-needed basis, all of which I find rather alarming. And I want to know whether or not you know of any ways that people can join together and maybe hire their own doctors, or if there are doctors forming alternative approaches for liberty-minded people who don't want to participate in government electronic records. I greatly look forward to your uh, Response, and I love your show. Thanks. Bye.
0: Let's um, let's go out there in the world that some people will see as conspiracy theory that I just see as eventuality on this one, uh, and let's understand why they're doing what they're doing. Now, the paranoid will say, hey, you know what? Um, they're doing this so they can see whether I eat pizza or not and ration my health care. They're not doing this to see whether you eat pizza or not. Not. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Could that be what healthcare looks like in 2080? I don't know, maybe. But here's, here's the short-term agenda. This has not gone away. Uh, the Democrats have succeeded in getting this thing done. And I don't really side with either political party, but on this one, there's no question who stood up and tried to stop it and who put it through. And they've done it in such a way that, as I've already made this prediction several times, I'll make it again today, within two to four years, The United States people will turn to whoever's in government, Republican or Democrat, and they will beg, they will beg, they will beg, they will beg for a public option. People that scream bloody murder against it will turn around and ask for it. Why? Because the stage has been set to drive health insurance through the roof. So the electronic monitoring is about setting up an infrastructure for pricing control. For the eventuality, when we go to a system where the government is behind or part of all insurance, whether you buy it from a private entity or directly from the government as a public option, the government will have its hands in all of it. Kind of sort of like with the private companies, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, which we all know what that leads to, companies that go broke. And as we tire them out, we push more and more people into the government option, and we move more and more towards a single-payer system, which is what these people want to do. As we move toward that single payer system and that government oversaw highly regulated new version of insurance, we get closer and closer to Great Britain. We get closer and closer to the rationing that everybody called death squads. It's not death squads. That's, that's, that's eccentric language that gets used against us. So stop doing it. Okay. Rationing is a part of healthcare right now. It's done in a lot of ways. One, you go to the emergency room and you have insurance. You get life saving care and anything else you need, your insurance covers. You don't have insurance, you get life saving care and you get out the door. That's a form of rationing. You need a heart and I need a heart. I'm 38, you're 68. Who gets the heart first? Okay? I'm an alcoholic and you're not. Who gets the heart first? There's rationing in every organ donor program in America. We only have so much, so we, we you know we give you what we can. There's rationing in the healthcare system right now. You know you're on low end, you know government supported. Show up at the emergency room type stuff. You wait in a long line. I go see my private physician. So rationing is not. I'm not saying good or bad. It's here already. But in a government-controlled single-payer system, the, some government bureaucrat determines the rationing versus a doctor. And they look at every bed in a hospital, and there's computer programs that are developed by private companies. I actually know a guy who develops one of them for people in England so that someone, so the hospital and the government together can make the hospital as efficient as possible. People in a bed, out of a bed. As soon as that bed's empty, who goes into it next? Not saying good or bad, I think it's bad, but okay, that's that's the purpose of this monitoring, so that everything's known about a patient so that they can properly allocate resources based on what's available. Not an evil Nazi like death squad, but a very cold heartless system that sees need versus the personal component, which is dangerous in my opinion. But that's what it's for. So let's got to be clear what it's for before we talk about how to avoid it. The way it's going to work is simple. If you want to use your insurance, you got to do it. So the option of going out and paying a doctor is still open for now. Unlike Hillary Care. Hillary Care back in the 90s, one of the big things that killed that, and this is one thing we have to give to the Democrats. They learn from their mistakes, unlike some of, some of the conservatives that I wish would learn from your mistakes. So you'd be better at Stonewall, because I don't want the full Republican agenda or the full Democrat agenda, folks. What I'd like is for us to stop doing crap, all right? If the government would stop doing crap, we'd be better off. We've come far enough on both sides. Leave us alone. So, what I really want is very effective people on both sides of the aisle, butting heads all the time and getting nothing done. Our, our country would be better off if they stopped doing stuff, right? So, they'll take my, I guess I, maybe I talk too much when I talk about this, because I want to make sure you understand I'm not shilling for anybody. But the option that's available is for the doctor to still take cash. And under Hillary Care, if you had, if that had passed, and you went to your doctor and he took cash and you guys kind of did it off the record. Your doctor was in trouble and so were you. Both of you could have went to jail. That doesn't exist yet. So the ability for a physician to take private cash and do whatever the hell he chooses to do as your doctor under the, you know, the legislation of being a doctor and the license of being a doctor is still open. But when you need a heart transplant or something like that and it's an $80,000 procedure and you need to use your insurance whether it comes from a private company or the government, most people can't whip out eighty grand and get it done. So if you'd like to minimize your exposure, cash-taking doctors are the way to go. I've said this in the past. I don't know of anything like it. I would love to see a website like com, where any doctor anywhere can go and set up and say specifically, I operate outside of health insurance. And and leave a profile. So like findadoctor.com, something like that, but for specifically this, including doctors to say, and I'll use your insurance when it's necessary for testing and whatever, but you come in for a run of the mill checkup, here's my here's my rates. Let's get these guys bidding for cash. You know? Most doctors would rather rather have the cash anyway. But by the time you know, they go through all the crap to get the government to pay or the insurance to pay. They get a fraction of what they would charge on the, on the surface anyway. They can charge less to the public that way. Uh, they get the money immediately. They don't have to wait for it. They don't have to go through paperwork and administration. Somebody needs to do this. I don't have the time. But somebody needs to do this. And somebody needs to create an alternative. With an understanding as an entrepreneur, here's your risk. Because the government will eventually close that loophole. Because they try if anything they 've tried to do before they will eventually try to do again, and Hillary care attempted to close that loophole when it was in um, you know kind of review trying to get through the, the the government in the first place, absolutely had provisions in it to if you went to a doctor and paid cash outside of the system you were both in big, big, big freaking trouble. The doctor could have ended up in jail, and you could have ended up with a fine. All right, so that's the best I can do on that one for you. There's not a good solution, but that would be the solution, is a network of doctors that agree cash and publish rates. That's what we really need, doctors publishing an office visit, a blood test. You know, Come on, doctors, get off your ass and fix this problem before the government runs you into a world where you're nothing but a bureaucrat. It's up to you guys to do something about this. Some smart doctor out there has some smart brother that knows freaking computers. Get off your ass and do this and help the American people. You know, It's time for you guys to bring the solution instead of you know saying, hey, I'm going to close my practice if this stuff goes through. Fix it, guys. You can do it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. Love
1: the show. My name is Charles. All right, quick question. Uh, as a self-described terrible employee, I heard you call yourself that, uh, someone who's intelligent, a hard worker, but, you know, just regular jobs just don't seem to be your fit. Uh, what would you recommend as an income stream or career path for a 22-year-old married guy who kind of can relate to you in a lot of ways? Um, as just a quick bit of background, um, I've been listening to your show for about a year. Um, I was a forklift driver at the time, so I would kind of just listen to him over and over again because we had a lot of free time. Uh, What would you recommend that someone like myself do? Is there a certain uh, site or is there a certain place to kind of go that you can kind of try to figure out some of this stuff? Um, Any info that you have would be great. Uh, Thank you. Bye.
0: Well, I think that's a good question to wrap up with today, and I think a lot of people out there that listen to this show Want something of their own, whether they want to have their own business as a full time venture, or they just like to have a few extra hundred dollars from some kind of a, an internet business. Uh, Tim Ferriss calls it the muse, you know, the the thing that gives you freedom. Um, and and it's really up to people to figure out the what for themselves. As far as websites, I'm leery, and you might want to check out my site that I do a podcast on called Five Minutes with Jack on Business, and it's at Jackspearco.com. And I'm doing that mainly because I've been asked this before, and I am I, very leery about recommending anybody's website for this because most of these guys are hucksters. Uh, they're, they're out there looking for your money first and, and answers second, and their answers aren't really much different from each other. And um, You can learn some things from them, but it's very expensive tuition for very little material. Most of these guys are concerned with, can they sell you a big mentoring program for 1200 bucks where they tell you you're doing everything wrong and, and yell at you and, and tell you to just try harder? Um, or sell you a bunch of CDs and stuff that, that give you information that's just been repackaged and repackaged and repackaged? Not that it's bad information, but I just don't trust these people. I think the how-to-make-money market on the Internet is a freaking cesspool. And it's why I do 5 Minutes with Jack, and it's why I don't charge anything for it because this is just business advice. It's up to you to do something with it. And I gave advice long enough to watch people not act on it, where I don't feel good about taking money just for the advice anymore. So there's my resource I'm going to give you, and there's some resources on that site you can use, but if you don't see it on that site, I don't endorse it. All right, now let's talk more about the the typical guy that's in his early 20s that's asking this question, and you're identifying me with when I say I'm unemployable. Let me be clear about something. I was never a great employee, but I was a badass worker, and I didn't consider myself unemployable until just a few years ago. When I was 22, your age, what I was doing was traveling all over South Texas and Southern Louisiana and a few other places, working as a contractor doing central office equipment installations for MCI. And uh, learning about telecommunication systems, and that led to uh, a more local position where I didn't have to travel in sort of a related field, more of the data cabling side of things. That led me into sales. That led me into a, a, a great career uh, for a few years here and a few years there and into, into making a lot of money and allowing me to build up cash reserves, build up debt, had to get rid of that, um, and learned a, just a massive amount of things. And somewhere along the way, I started playing around with the Internet and learning from that. And then I went and I was employed in the Internet marketing realm uh, as the head of a, of a Internet marketing for a web design agency for a while and as the head of Internet marketing uh, for a very large corporation, a $500 million company for a while. And all of that was like school. And eventually I got to a point where unemployable has two components – one, I don't make a good employee. Two, I don't need money from a job to live on. Without the two, you're not unemployable. As long as you need the money, no matter how much you want something of your own, you're still employable because you're going to work and you're going to keep your day job and you're going to make some money. So please don't think you can shortcut the learning process. If I hadn't spent all those years in business, dealing with people, traveling the country, learning about things, having conversations, taking all of this information from all of these different worlds, troubleshooting as a mechanic from the Army, troubleshooting as a, as a technician in the data world, interacting with people in the sales world, presenting as a That's why I can get on and do a show like this every day. If you asked me to do this at 22, even though I knew a lot of the skill set information from growing up with it, I could have never done this. I couldn't have marketed it. So my advice to you is start taking jobs for what you can learn. Don't necessarily tell your employer that's going to hire you that's what you're doing. And when you've extracted everything you can learn from a job, if you can find a job that pays as much or more will you'll learn something new, take it. And use career path as twofold. One, paying the bills, and two for what you can learn. All right. And to be fair to the person that's hired you, because he doesn't know that you're going to be there for 18 to 36 months and go somewhere else, And you're not going to tell him that because you're not stupid? In those 18 to 36 months, you deliver more than most of his employees do in seven years. When you leave him, it should hurt, and he should want you back, and you should always be able to walk back in. Where he would fire someone to have you back. You want him to feel that way about you. You want him to give you great recommendations. You want, when you leave, for him to feel like, man, I knew this would happen someday because the guy's better than here. He he, he was, was below his capacity. You wanna blow it out when you work for somebody. You wanna deliver twice as much. And it's not just about physical hardware. It's about being smart. It's about doing the right things. And build something of your own on the side. As for what to do, what business to go in, what niche, follow your passion. It's all, every time you ask me, I'm gonna give you the same answer. Follow your passion in life. Follow your passion every freaking day. I don't care if your job is shoveling shit in a turkey farm, something I've done, or washing heads down a ditch in a turkey factory, something I've done. I don't care if it's, if it's hauling coal out of a hole, something I did as a son of a bootleg coal miner. All right, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's packing boxes in a warehouse, another job I did. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's being out till 3 a.m. In a, in, in a hole trying to get a cable system back up while people yell at you because they think that you shut their cable off on purpose. Something else I've done. I don't care what it is. You do it to the max. But you find your passion in every moment that you can spare without sacrificing your family as a married man. To work on that passion and turn it into something, you spend it and you work on it and you make it work. Because there's never been a time in history where it's more possible. Another reason I couldn't have done it when I was 22, because when I was 22 it was 1994... And Al Gore, I guess, hadn't invented the internet completely yet. And the only thing out there were some boards and some chat rooms and nobody spent money online. There wasn't anything similar to a podcast. I didn't know what the hell I was doing yet. I didn't know the first thing about marketing yet. I was kind of an okay guy at selling myself. I hadn't even been in professional sales yet. You have everything at your disposal today, guys. You want something of your own? Whether you want a mushroom farm like I told a guy earlier. That can have a web presence with it that can make you the mushroom guy. The guy that everybody comes to and asks, well, how do I get this to grow? How do I get that to grow? It won't happen overnight. You'll have to learn as you go. You'll have to get better as you go. But no matter what it is, whether you are a fan of the L.A. Dodgers, a guy that grows mushrooms, a guy that's a mountain biker, a hiker, a freaking person that makes handmade freaking knives, I don't care what it is. As long as it's really your passion, not just something you can do well, but something you really love, something you would do for free, you can make it work. It's up to you to do that, though. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. I hope this has been a good show for you. I try not to go off too much on the business stuff. That's why I have the 5 Minutes with Jack show now. But I do think it's important that we all understand that having personal Brand equity is so important in the modern world. People always say, well, if the shit hits the fan, you know, I had a guy recently complain because of the contest with Brian Black that I've said a few times. By the way, I'd appreciate you friending me on Facebook if you haven't done it yet. You don't even have to go to Facebook now. As long as you're logged into your Facebook account, go to the survivalpodcast.com. There's a like button on the top. Click it. Done. Right? You'll help me win this month. You know, if if the shit hits the fan, that technology won't matter anyway. What if it doesn't? Or what if it doesn't hit the fan in the way that you're saying that it's supposed to? What if the shit hits the fan to a point where, eventually, ten years from now, there's so much more automation, there's so much more uh, technology, that people that have made a living with their hands find it harder and harder to compete? What if that's the way the shit hits the fan? What if the shit hits the fan the way it did for the elevator operators? Did you know at one time that was a good job, an elevator operator? You know, elevators were complicated, and there was a guy that just in a big building just stood there and worked the elevator all day, and somebody made the elevator easier to do, and all those guys lost their jobs. What about telephone operators? In the early stages, I'm not talking about, you know, you know, nine one four one one or what have you, you know. I'm talking about the lady who would sit there and, and, and unplug and plug things in, you know, and, and get your connection for you and verify it, and then say, okay, now you can talk, and then back off, and then take the next customer, What happened to all those people? Technology and automation aren't going away. Without a complete collapse of our electrical grid, and even if that happens, eventually it will be rebuilt. And the people that know how to rebuild it, what do you think their place in society is going to be compared to the person that doesn't know how? There's a place for primitive skills. There's a place for technology. There's a place for everything. But there's no place in today's day and age for you to not have some level of personal brand equity. Going forward, you want to survive what's coming. You don't just plan to survive the end of the world as we know it. You better also plan to survive the evolution of the world as we know it. And things are evolving, they are changing. And 10 years from today, 10 years from today, you won't recognize this place, whether for bad or for good. But you better be prepared for both. With that, this has been Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.